Due to the graphic nature of this cult's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode of Cults includes discussions of graphic material that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for listeners under 13. Jimmy Roberts used his ex-military and evangelist preacher background to amass a group of followers dedicated enough to follow him across the country, oftentimes camping in the woods and forced to search through garbage, hoping to find scraps to survive. Hitchhiking in freezing weather in the middle of the night with no car in sight was truly a trial to members of the Brethren, but that was nothing compared to the trials they believed they would endure if they didn't find eternal salvation. Hi, I'm Greg Polson. And I'm Vanessa Richardson. And this is Cults. Today we're taking a deep dive into Jimmy T. Roberts and the Brethren, a small but secretive cult. They're often known as the garbage people because of their well-known habit of scrounging for food in dumpsters. If you want to listen to any previous episodes of Cults, you can find them on your favorite podcast directory or on our website, Parcast. And don't forget to subscribe while you're there, because a new episode comes out every Tuesday. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram, at Parcast, and on Twitter, at Parcast Network. If you like what you hear, please leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. Jimmy T. Roberts founded The Brethren in 1971 in Montana, and the Christianity-based cult is still in operation across the United States today. They're so furtive that their true numbers are unknown. Working in small groups, members of the Brethren are socially and physically isolated from the outside world. They believe that cutting ties to society and maintaining an impoverished, itinerant lifestyle is the only way to achieve salvation. In part one, we dove into Jimmy T. Roberts' life. He spent his lonely childhood in a strict religious household. After his brief time in the military he transformed into a hellfire preacher who rejected connections to the outside world as well as family and friends. But his charismatic nature and trustworthy blue eyes gained him followers more than willing to do whatever he asked. In part two, we'll learn a little more about the followers of the Brethren and what life was like in such a harsh cult. We'll also investigate the accounts of ex-members who struggled to leave the Brethren, as well as families of current members who are desperately trying to find their loved ones. In 1971, Jimmy T. Roberts gathered a devoted group of followers in Missoula, Montana. These were Christians who felt lost in a changing world and isolated from general society. Vulnerable youth who sought guidance, direction, and assuredness that their lives had meaning. Jimmy T. Roberts used emotional manipulation to control his followers, keeping them dependent on him for leadership and isolating them from family and friends. He exploited his members' vulnerabilities to keep them in the Brethren. The Brethren may be Christianity-based, but membership in this cult is unlike any mainstream Christian denomination. Followers of the Brethren believe that in order to reach salvation, you must give up your worldly possessions and live for God every day. And it's not only worldly possessions members must give up. Jobs, relationships, sex, and family all have to go. 
The brethren is their only pursuit and their only family. For a more in-depth look at the psychology, Vanessa's going to take over from here. While she's not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, she has done a lot of research for this show. Thanks, Greg. This type of isolation is very common with cults and ensures that members are solely dependent on the cult itself. As we've discussed previously on the show, Robert Lifton was one of the pioneers in the study of mind control in cults. He coined the term milieu control, which refers to a cult's tendency to isolate its followers. We can see the seeds of Robert's desire for milieu control in the months after he founded the cult in Montana in 1971. Even in these early days, Roberts preached fire and brimstone consequences for participating in the sinful outside world to his congregation. And in 1972, only a year after the Brethren began, Roberts began to increase his control over his followers. Roberts began calling himself Brother Evangelist, or the Elder Evangelist. This name came from the lead character in Pilgrim's Progress, a popular Protestant religious novel about seeking salvation despite temptations and trials from the outside world. By giving himself a new name, Roberts was making it clear that he was the only link between his followers and the Word of God. Roberts was employing a technique here that Lifton describes as mystical manipulation. By making it seem like he had a divine authority, Roberts was setting himself up as superior to his followers. Once Roberts had established himself as the group's spiritual authority, he began recruiting new members. Robert started targeting colleges and universities on the West Coast, specifically looking for people who were young, vulnerable, and open to new philosophies on life. Dolores and William Carroll's son, Bob, was recruited by the Brethren in 1974 at the age of 22, making him one of the earliest documented recruits. But he was just one of many college-age recruits. In 1976, two members of the Brethren met Jim Guerra, a college student at Harvard who would later author From Dean's List to Dumpsters, a book about his life in the cult. Guerra says, quote, It was during my sophomore year that the seeds of my conversion to the cult began to be planted. It began with a prayer request that I grow in faith. As I began to read the Bible and seek God about the power of faith, I learned some good principles, end quote. In other words, Guerra was in a transitional period of his life and eager to find new ways to expand his religious devotion. This made him a prime target for cult recruiters. In March of 1976, Guerra came in contact with two brethren recruiters, known as brothers, in his friend's dorm. He said of the encounter, quote, here was a man who transcended the realm of principle and could specifically apply the Bible to life. Here was someone who could tell me concretely and practically what to do to be closer to God. I had asked friends beforehand what I could do to be closer to God, and the answers I got were foggy and useless." End quote. The Brethren offered seemingly what other Christian churches didn't, direct and unquestionable answers. When meeting with new members, according to a Watchmen.org profile on the Brethren, Quote, group members evangelize using aggressive tactics. They quote profusely from select passages of the Bible. They inform their potential recruit that the first step toward salvation is to listen to the true gospel hidden by false churches, end quote. 
false churches according to the brethren message were any churches that weren't the brethren. And recruiters were friendly and persistent, offering a message of hope. In an ABC primetime special on the brethren, Diane Sawyer reported, quote, To the spiritual kids, they quote from the Bible and promise a life of certainty. The lonely kids, they offer support. At Columbia University, they lure students with their provocative question, Do right and wrong exist? They offer a place among God's chosen with such intensity that in days, sometimes hours, students drop out and disappear. End quote. It's not uncommon for cults to target young people for recruitment. In fact, according to cult psychology researchers Dr. Clark and Dr. Kath, the average age of the former cult members they treated was 19 and a half. The Brethren target college students specifically for a couple of different reasons. One reason is that college students and young adults are in a questioning phase of their lives. We saw this with Gera, where he was seeking new ways to deepen his faith. According to a paper called Innovative Higher Education, contributed to by psychology researchers from across the United States, undergraduate students tend to shift toward greater openness and tolerance to diversity, especially in their freshman and sophomore years. That openness makes them strong candidates for new but possibly manipulative ideas. Cults also target college students because they know that students and young adults are under an extreme amount of pressure. California Institute of Technology psychologist John Patrick Peterson explains, quote, the human desire for comfort in the face of fear and uncertainty leads us to seek outlets that can soothe our anxieties, end quote. Jim Guerra confirms this was a motive for him to join the Brethren, writing, quote, I was free at last, with no more term papers to write, and no more Ivy League pretension, end quote. Guerra was, of course, hesitant about leaving school on a whim to join the Brethren. But when he expressed those concerns, the brothers responded, quote, that's the devil trying to pluck the seed, end quote. Guerra said, quote, the thought was terrifying. I began to get worried. What other thoughts of mine did the devil inspire? End quote. That sense of panic is what eventually draws people to accepting a cult's extreme terms for membership. Dr. Clark says, quote, at some point, the mark is placed in a panicky, disoriented state, and an emotional crisis is manufactured by the recruiters, end quote. This forces the recruit to adapt to the stressful situation and accept the solution to the crisis that the cult provides. To overcome their fear, they need to adhere to the rigid dogma of the group. Jim Guerra fell victim to this mentality in a matter of hours. Quote, what began as an idle curiosity about some itinerant Christian's lifestyle had evolved into a life and death decision that determined my eternal existence, end quote. The Brethren recruiter told him that the Lord's coming was just around the corner, and the door to salvation was almost completely shut. In Robert Lifton's discussion on thought reform, this technique is described as the dispensing of existence. This refers to the idea that only the cult can determine who is saved. Gera's recruiters made it clear that he needed to join the cult in order to save his soul from damnation. He joined immediately in 1976. Once a recruit joins the Brethren, their life changes entirely. Indoctrination is swift. 
according to a watchdog organization, quote, the potential young recruit is next invited to answer the call of Christ. Just as the disciples gave the example, leave all and follow us now. The recruit is then taken out of the geographical area where they were recruited within a few days of joining the group, end quote. A former Brethren member told Diane Sawyer and ABC, quote, Submission to Roberts and his brethren began with isolation and a gradual loss of identity. They changed their names to Hebrew, spent six and seven hours a day studying the Bible and singing hymns, end quote. Recruits were also informed that they needed to isolate themselves and cut ties to the secular world to avoid eternal damnation. That isolation started with what Jim Roberts called the flesh relations, or family and friends. We can see evidence of this in how one of the early Brethren recruits, Bob Carroll, cut ties with his family. His parents published their story in the Roberts Group Parents Network. This online network serves as a forum for parents who have lost children to the Brethren to tell their stories and search for their children. Bob Carroll's parents wrote, quote, Bob's correspondence with us soon tapered off from frequent to rare, and eventually we had no word. As a part of the process of severing family ties, members are often required to make calls or send letters to their family once they've joined the Brethren. One example is the letter sent by Bart Wilcox, a student at the University of Idaho when he joined the Brethren in spring of 1991. He wrote, quote, Mom and Dad, I've dropped out of school. I've given everything away. Don't worry about me. God willing, this will be the last time you ever hear from me." End quote. A terrifying sentiment to get from a loved one. But as we've seen in previous cults episodes, it's common for cults to isolate members from their families. Stanley H. Kath, a psychoanalyst and associate professor of psychiatry at the Tufts University School of Medicine, says, quote, "...often they set up a we-they philosophy. We have the truth, and you do not." End quote. Friends and family were seen as very dangerous and a real threat to the Brethren way of life. Throughout From Dean's List to Dumpsters, Jim Guerra describes the rampant paranoia surrounding contact with outside relations. Quote, Too many people, especially our flesh relations, were scouring the country to take away the precious truth that God had given us. End quote. One woman, Sister Eunice, in Gera's recollections, joined the Brethren with her daughter, Esther, after her son, Silas, convinced her to cut ties with her husband. Silas made her believe that her marriage was somehow a form of adultery and that she would be damned if she didn't join the Brethren and abandon her husband. This form of isolating new recruits from their family members is yet another example of milieu control. Brethren members weren't just required to give up their connections to their friends and family members. They were instructed to give up all attachments to the allegedly unholy secular world. Jim Guerra recounts a specific teaching of the Brother Evangelist in his book, quote, One of the ways people defile themselves is with the wisdom of the world. If you go about and fill your mind with the teachings of a man and defile yourself, you won't find any salvation in them. They are all carnal and foolish. Universities fill men and women with the wisdom of this world that is just foolishness with God." End quote. According to psychology professor Lou Manza, 
These sort of isolating tactics can actually deepen members' existing emotional insecurities while encouraging them to become completely reliant on their cult for all their physical and emotional needs. Once they severed connections to their family, Brethren members took the final step of severing ties with their finances. Afraid of being caught up in any sort of fraud, the Brethren did not require new members to give their money to the organization. Instead, they were to leave their finances exactly as they were, or gift the money to family, friends, or the Brethren if they chose. Anything they physically possessed could be given away or donated to the group. According to the Watchman Fellowship Profile of the Brethren, quote, holding on to worldly relations and possessions will keep individuals out of heaven. Converts must hate everything in their past or risk being pulled back to the former way of life and losing salvation, end quote. By making his recruits give up everything, Roberts ensured that his members would be near impossible to track down. Once a young college student joined the Brethren, they disappeared. Many of them have never been found. Our story will continue in a moment after a brief message. And now, back to cults. Members of the Brethren began recruiting bright young college students to join the cult soon after Jimmy T. Roberts founded the group in 1971. New recruits, like former Harvard student Jim Guerra, who joined several years after the founding, dropped out of school, cut all ties to their families and friends, gave up all their possessions, and vanished. Once members of the Brethren isolated their targets, they were swiftly indoctrinated in the group's belief system. Jerry Williams, a Brethren member, explained, quote, Our main message is we're trying to live as Christ and the early disciples did. We require what the Messiah required, it has to do with forsaking worldly possessions and living for God every day, end quote. Squatting in his first abandoned house with his fellow brothers, Garrett described his first evening with the brethren. Quote, the whole experience was culture shock, end quote. Bibles were being read in every hall and scripture was openly quoted. Members gathered together to worship, sing songs, and hear testimonies of what God was doing in the group. Gera had never experienced anything like it. But Gera soon learned that this seemingly simple, devout group maintained a strict hierarchy. Gera later noted, quote, I gradually discovered how elitist this little group was, end quote. Roberts was already at the top of the group as the elder. Below him were several elders, men who had been chosen by Roberts to lead small pockets of people all across the country. They reported to Roberts on the ins and outs of their small flocks and doled out rewards, punishments, and orders. Only elders were allowed to preach, give scripture, or answer questions of their fellow brothers. Below the elders were the brothers, regular members and followers of Jim Roberts. Elders often start as brothers, but with time and experience, ascend the cult's ranks. The brethren practiced what's called extreme discipleship, which is the idea that the group's loyalty is to God and, by extension, Roberts and the elders. This idea speaks to a concept Lifton describes as sacred science. Only the cult's leaders know the truth. Lower-level members are not permitted to think for themselves. 
When Gera questioned the elders' negative opinions on scientists to another brother, the brother's response was, quote, I am not in a place to answer your question because I am not an older brother, end quote. As a new brother, Gera was expected to be obedient, not questioning. And just a couple of months after Gera joined the Brethren in early summer of 1976, the large group changed forever. In a cramped and run-down abandoned house in Portland, Maine, the church was brought together for the last time. And increasingly paranoid Roberts dismissed small factions of the group around the country and forbade his followers from uttering his name so the fowls, or police and families of members, couldn't persecute him. Going forward, small packs of members of the Brethren never stayed in any one place for very long. So things like clothing, backpacks, and bicycles were particularly useful. This method of moving from place to place in secret and foraging for food in dumpsters is what earned the Brethren the nickname the Garbage Eaters. Roberts essentially inflicted his paranoia on the entire group and worked to keep his followers on edge and afraid. Gerber remembers an elder telling him not to make a fire on a cold winter night in the late 1970s, saying, quote, the police might see it from the sky. Police have used airplanes and helicopters against us in the past to find our camps. Besides, the older brothers told us not to have any fires. It's not wisdom, end quote. As reported by ABC News, quote, they are nomads, Recently, some of them camped in a house in Cleveland, tacking scriptures on the walls, even on the mattress. They move secretly from state to state in cells of a handful of people. They live off food from garbage dumpsters, end quote. Traveling in small packs of five to ten, an elder would be sent ahead to scout the next location. Wearing long robes with untamed hair and beards and quoting the Bible, members of the Brethren stuck out like a sore thumb in cities across the United States. They wouldn't stay long, worried about overstaying their welcome. To convince followers to move from town to town quickly, the Brothers preached that some towns were just too full of satanic corruption to gain more followers. Nomadic life was difficult for many members, and harder than they expected when they gave up everything to follow the Brethren into the wilderness. Guerra summed up his way of thinking as he traversed the country in the 1970s. Quote, This was all part of serving Christ, I guess. He suffered for me, and I must suffer for him, and I must be willing to endure hardness as a good soldier. Safety was more important than comfort. End quote. When they couldn't bike, they train-hopped or hitchhiked to the next town. One or two hundred miles was considered a short distance for a newer brother or sister, and most crisscrossed the United States much more frequently. Some loved the community aspect of living within the Brethren, but for many others, it was a hardship they were not prepared to endure, physically or mentally. Gary recounts, quote, The older brothers were able to shrug contentedly and thank God for providing whatever he provided, but some of us younger members found it hard to appreciate the cottage cheese that sat solitary on our plates, especially since it was the first meal in a long journey in which the older brother decided how much and when we would eat." End quote. As we've seen with followers of cults in previous episodes, it's difficult for them to think critically when they're malnourished and sleep-deprived. 
the exhausted members' concerns were easily quashed with Bible verses and emotional manipulation. Dr. Kath reports that, quote, keeping devotees constantly fatigued, deprived of sensory input, and suffering protein deprivation, working extremely long hours in street solicitation, or in cult-owned businesses, engaging in monotonous chanting and rhythmical singing, may induce psychophysiological changes in the brain. The rhythmical movement of the body can lead to altered states of consciousness, and changes in the pressure or vibration pattern of the brain may affect the temporal lobe." End quote. All of these techniques were designed to keep members from thinking for themselves and questioning Robert's doctrine. Many members were also prevented from treating their physical illnesses. Roberts believed doctors were part of the wicked outside world and were forbidden. Diane Sawyer reported to ABC, quote, But even through suffering, people remained obedient. The former members said abscessed teeth would go untreated, so would broken bones, because Roberts allowed no outside medical care. They told us a child had died from lack of medical care. End quote. Members suffering from physical ailments were told that Roberts would put in a good word for them with the Lord. If the Lord didn't heal them, it was because they were not righteous and needed to work harder to be in God's good graces. Of course, what Roberts really meant was that they had to work harder to please him. Jim Guerra wore glasses when he joined the Brethren in 1976, but ditched them by the end of the decade. He said, quote, if you wear glasses, it is a sign you are not trusting God to heal your eyes. Because it is not of faith, it is a sin. If it is His will, He will heal them." End quote. The Brethren members were supposed to ignore not only physical aches and new issues, but pre-existing physical and mental conditions as well. Many of the Brethren members were transients and the mentally ill. Guerra recounts traveling with a woman named Sister Hannah in 1978. They were approached by the police, who checked records to find her real name was Cheryl Eastman. Cheryl had disappeared a year earlier in 1977. Her parents were looking for her because she had a history of suicidal tendencies and had been in regular psychiatric care. Guerra found it difficult to wrap his head around the idea that a member of the Brethren could suffer from mental illness. Quote, all Christians were given the spirit of power and love and a sound mind. Her membership in the group assured both her present and future sanity, end quote. But Roberts didn't actually care about the consequences his members suffered for not taking care of their mental and physical health. In fact, keeping his followers in poor health was just another way he was able to manipulate their dependence on him. By refusing to let his members see doctors, Roberts was able to further isolate them from the rest of the world. The fewer interactions the Brethren had outside the community, the less likely they were to eventually think for themselves and leave the group. This is another example of what Lifton refers to as milieu control. Roberts was suspicious and paranoid. He kept his followers at an arm's length and believed that they were inherently untrustworthy and sinful. Whenever he caught a follower engaging in what he deemed sin, he would exile the follower to keep the rest of the group fearful and obedient. In Gera's book, a brother named David questioned Robert's teachings. David was abandoned in a random city and never spoken to again. 
This is an example of what Lifton calls a demand for purity. A cult leader uses shaming tactics like exile to make members avoid anything the leader deems forbidden or sinful. Roberts demanded a very extreme version of purity from his members. Some, in mainstream Christian denominations, believe that sexuality and sexual relations outside of marriage are sinful. But Roberts took this many steps further. He preached that relationships themselves were extraneous and distractions from the calling to God's ministry. Very few couples were part of the Brethren. The couples that were part of the Brethren were closely monitored by Roberts and were often under a large amount of pressure to conform to Roberts' evangelical preaching. Leslie Smales, a member of the Brethren from 1983 to 1992 and author of the book The Raincoat People, recounts in her book, quote, For some reason, Jim Roberts the Elder was not overly worried about Smales defecting, since she was inadvertently micromanaged by her husband, Thomas, end quote. Sex and relationships were very threatening to the community of the Brethren, because no one was supposed to care for someone more than God or the Elder. Roberts required his followers ask permission to get married, but even when they requested permission, Roberts often didn't grant it. This became a point of contention for many of the members. Quote, the whole issue of marriage depressed and grieved most brothers. It seemed only a select few in these latter days before the end of the world were called to marriage. Celibacy in the brother evangelist's mind was the spiritual option for those serious about the work of God, end quote. Roberts didn't just dislike marriage. He strongly disliked women and held adamantly sexist views. According to Diane Sawyer, who met Roberts in an interview, quote, he refused to shake my hand, saying he doesn't touch women, end quote. Roberts' dislike of women extended even to women who joined the Brethren. He made sure that women were left powerless by the cult's organizational structure. Women weren't allowed to become elders or advance to a position of authority. They functioned as second-class citizens. Rules for the women were strict and based on Robert's twisted views of modesty. They wore their hair long and were covered from the neck down in loose clothing. Women were not even permitted to speak to brothers without being spoken to first and were not allowed to sleep in the same area as men without it being deemed immodest. Jim Guerra remembers the elder teaching that sisters should limit their words to what is needful. Quote, some sisters, if you ask them a question, will go on and on if you don't cut them off. It's a godly thing for a woman to have a meek and quiet spirit. Sometimes we have to help them to be quiet." End quote. While we don't know the extent of intimate partner violence within the Brethren, it's well known that emotional and mental abuse against women was rampant. The women's second-class citizen status within the Brethren left them even more isolated than the men in the group. This likely made it especially difficult for female members to leave. Roberts didn't just encourage members to abuse women in the group. He was also a proponent of child abuse. According to Andrew J. Pavlo's The Cult Experience, quote, female members are taught by the brother to obey their cult husbands and that child abuse is God's way of ensuring obedience. Roberts urges his female followers to beat their children, claiming that this is necessary for their salvation, end quote. 
Roberts feared the close relationship between parents and children would get in the way of his followers' devotion to the cult. By encouraging his followers to abuse their children, he may have been deliberately attempting to undermine the natural bonds between cult members and their children. Some say that because the brethren were nonviolent, there was never any corporal punishment of children. Others say differently. Garrett does recount his story in 1977, in which Roberts chastises another brother for speaking to a child. Quote, Because in their little hearts, they might start thinking they are older brothers and sisters. It is charitable not to speak with them, because it helps them stay humble. End quote. According to Earth's Final Hour by Ed Hinson, quote, They left in their wake a trail of broken homes, battered women, and abused children. Believing that children are too young to know God, they assume the little ones are ruled by Satan. This mentality then assumes that unruly children are agents of the devil and need to have the devil beaten out of them, end quote. Given Robert's attitude toward children, it should come as no surprise that there weren't many children in the Brethren. Recruiters usually went after college students and young adults. So the only kids in the cult were either born into it or brought in by parents who joined with their families. But Robert's intolerant attitude towards familial ties would come back to haunt him. His tactics would eventually drive some members right back into the arms of their families. Our story will continue in a moment, right after the break. Now, our story continues. After Jim Roberts founded the Brethren in 1971, he made new members cut all ties with their families when they joined the group. By 1980, family members desperate for contact with their children were openly referring to the Brethren as a cult. In response, Roberts decided he needed to isolate members even more completely. From 1980 to 1984, he created new rules to keep his followers completely segregated from the rest of society. Roberts enacted a complete code of silence between brothers on where they were going and where they had been. Brothers and sisters were kept in different houses in order to discourage them from growing close or forming relationships with each other. Members could no longer stay in houses or work in exchange for housing. They were also no longer allowed to use toilet paper, laundry soap, or salt. Roberts decided these necessities were frivolous and luxurious. And most crucially, Roberts forbid any more marriages in the group. Roberts claimed these new rules existed to keep his followers from sin. In reality, he was just tightening his control over the group. He didn't want followers to be loyal to spouses or family members instead of him. But many followers actually ended up leaving the group precisely because Roberts refused to allow them any contact with their families. In the winter of 1981, Jim Guerra reached out to his family for the first time in five years. Guerra missed his family deeply. He was also increasingly curious about life outside the Brethren. Even though he didn't feel ready to leave the group, he still wanted to know how his family was doing. Guerra said, quote, I didn't realize how much I'd hurt them until this visit, nor did I realize how much they loved me." End quote. It was this love that set him free and gave him the strength to leave the group. 
But it took Jim Guerra time to summon the willpower to leave, after a fellow member, Brother Amos, was hit by a car in the early 1980s, Guerra reached out to the brother evangelist Roberts to ask what Amos did to deserve being hit by the car. Roberts' response was to send him out on his own and away from the brethren. Quote, These are times when God tries your love for truth and sees how faithful you can be when there aren't other brothers and sisters around watching. It was this time away from the group in combination with two failed marriage requests that had Gara thinking, quote, the months of isolation were doing something to me. I began to secretly wish that I could find a way out of the group. I began to lose my joy for life as my deepest personal needs were not being met. Gradually, I grew disillusioned from the group and with the way I felt they manipulated me, end quote. But getting out of a cult is hard. When a member joined the Brethren, they went entirely off the grid and disconnected from the outside world. When they re-entered society, their lives were in shambles. No finances, no relationships, no home, no job, and no accounting for where they had been for years. And when they left the Brethren, they were completely cut off from the group. Roberts called former members sinners and slanderers, he preached that contact with them would be sinful. This is the sort of shunning tactic we've seen in many cults featured on this show. In spite of all this, Gera managed to leave the Brethren. Most ex-members move home, and Gera was no exception. He got in contact with his family again in 1986, after catching Roberts in a small lie. Quote, I knew Brother Evangelist deliberately worded things in a deceitful way to protect himself and others, end quote. Guerra wrote down all his concerns with the church and presented them to Roberts. He said, quote, He turned on me, telling me how ungrateful I was for all that the church had done for me and how they had rescued me from that abomination called Harvard and that I had always been an unstable brother, end quote. Guerra walked to the local library and called his mother from a payphone, saying, quote, Mom, this is Jim. I've been deceived. The group is a cult. I'm coming home. End quote. He left the cult in August of 1986. Many ex-members still suffer the psychological consequences of trying to put their lives back together after many years of cult life. A former member told ABC, quote, We weren't allowed to show emotion. It's not that it wasn't there. We just weren't allowed to show it. End quote. The deprogramming stage, as defined by Dr. Margaret Singer in Cults in Our Midst, involves, quote, providing members with information about the cult and showing them how their own decision-making power had been taken away from them, end quote. That can be hard to internalize and often leads to a life of hardship and psychological trauma for former cult members. Jim Guerra's life has improved since August of 1986, but it was an uphill battle. He was 30 years old, with little job experience, one-third of his bachelor's degree, uncorrected 2,500 vision, and a 10-year gap in his cultural awareness. But he was able to put his life back together with the help of other ex-members. He got married and eventually finished his degree. But he was one of the ones lucky enough to get out and live a normal life. Many others didn't choose to leave. Some are still involved in the Brethren, 
Others have been abandoned by the cult and left to fend for themselves. Desperate parents of children lost to the Brethren have traveled the country trying to track them down and bring them home. In 1987, Dolores and William Carroll finally heard about their son, Bob, who was one of the first Brethren recruits. Quote, We learned from a recent ex-member that Bob had an emotional breakdown while at their Houston, Texas location. As a result, he was sent on his own, essentially abandoned, to Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Our efforts to locate him there were fruitless, end quote. They go on to say, quote, About two years later, we encountered one of the cult's elders at a location in Portland, Oregon. Upon inquiry, the elder confirmed that Bob had displayed impairment and was no longer with the group. He suggested that Bob might be in either Memphis or Nashville, Tennessee. In an effort to locate him and tend to his physical and emotional needs, we have visited with public safety agencies in all of the mentioned sites to no avail. End quote. Devastated, Dolores and William turned to the only place they knew to go for outreach, the Roberts Group Parents Network, where they continue to write letters online pleading for information about their son. Larry and Judy Wilcox are one of the founding couples of the Roberts Group Parents Network, and they've been searching for their son, Bart, for over two decades. They had their first contact with their son after he joined in 1991. Quote, We were searching for Bart at this Portland house. He ducked out a window while they went in the front door. In many cases, we tried to get to him. In some, we barely missed him. In one, I walked by him. End quote. Their son Bart never left the Brethren, so they founded the Roberts Group Parents Network in 1996 as a way to connect with other parents who are looking for their children. Parents have tried different tactics to find their kids. Tracking addresses off letters, treading college campuses looking for Brethren members to ask about their sons and daughters, and in some cases, following their missing children from town to town manufacturing run-ins to convince them they're loved at home. It's a heart-wrenching task, but one the Roberts Group Parent Network supports as a way of reaching the children. Jonathan, a member of the Brethren interviewed by ABC, became defensive when asked by Diane Sawyer why parents were the enemy. He responded, quote, It's really grievous. Sometimes they can be, okay? Sometimes they do. They do. They have, in the past, kidnapped their children. They've taken them by force, end quote. Contrary to Jonathan's statements, many parents tried to persuade their children to come home voluntarily. This was the case with Georgia Busweiler, after her son Don joined the Brethren in 1995 and disappeared. Don was 27 and a burgeoning designer whose popular clothing line, Pervert, drew the attention of celebrities like Jay-Z, Janet Jackson, and Pharrell. But in 1995, Don gave away all of his possessions and abandoned his successful business to join the Brethren. His mother saw him just one year after he was recruited. Quote, We were overjoyed to see him until it became obvious that the purpose of the visit was to recruit the family into the group. When they were unsuccessful in achieving this end, they departed, end quote. Three years later, in 1998, his mother received word that Don was recruiting in Houston, so she flew out to see him. She managed to follow him until he was alone in a coffee shop. Quote, 
I was getting close, and I'm like, he's not reacting. He's just staring at me, and I was staring at him. I got face to face, and I just said, do you know me? And he said, yeah, ma. And I lost it. I hugged him, and then I just asked him, please don't run away. And he said, I'm not going to run away, end quote. Don told his mother that he was pursuing a life with God and that the brethren are now his family. He said he hadn't called her for fear she'd kidnap and try to deprogram him. She promised she wouldn't, but said she needs him in her life. After eight hours, she was about to leave when he surprised her by hugging her. But unfortunately for Georgia Busweiler, she never saw her son again. In 2014, Louis Loiseau made a documentary about Don Busweiler and his clothing company, Pervert, called How Can I Be Down? Loiseau confirmed Busweiler is still a member of the Brethren and goes by the name Micah. Loiseau said, quote, Many parents make the mistake of trying to challenge their son or daughter through quoting the Bible, and I made that mistake when I met Don. It's not a good idea. Brethren members study the Bible for hours every day. It's not the way to communicate with them unless you know the Bible inside and out and back to front. I challenged Don about isolating his mother, and he was like, I'm not going anywhere if she wants to see me, end quote. Georgia Busweiler had at least confirmation that her son is alive and doing reasonably well. Some weren't so lucky. Over two dozen families continued to write to their children via the Roberts Group Parents Network's online database, hoping that someone would come forward with information on their loved one or that their son or daughter would read the letters. But since members of the Brethren weren't permitted to use modern technology like the Internet, it's unlikely they read their parents' pleas. But the parents of Brethren members didn't necessarily have to wait forever. Many destructive cults can't survive once the leader dies. And on December 6, 2015, James T. Roberts passed away at the age of 76. We know Roberts did not believe in doctors or medication. So it's unsurprising that when he died, he was only 105 pounds, with sunken conjunctivitis-filled eyes and yellowing skin. The coroner noted that Roberts hadn't been to the doctor in so many years, it was almost impossible to tell what exactly killed him. But the coroner did find multiple different kinds of cancers in his body. Unfortunately for parents looking for their missing children, it's unclear what effect the death of Jimmy Roberts had on the Brethren as a whole. Rumors swirl that some of the more hesitant cells of Brethren followers disbanded when they learned the elder died. Others believe the Brethren is still very much in operation. As one ex-member said, quote, they're still around in small groups throughout the country, totaling maybe 60 members. But yeah, they're still here, end quote. Thanks again for tuning in to Cults. If you want to listen to any previous episodes of Cults, you can find them on Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, Google Play, Stitcher, and Spotify, or on our website, parcast.com, spelled P-A-R-C-A-S-T.com. 
If you like what you hear, please leave a five-star review or tell us what you think on social media. We're on Facebook and Instagram as at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. It seems simple, but it really helps our show. Cults was created by Max Cutler and is a production of Cutler Media and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Russell Nash, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire, Carly Madden, and Jeanette Manning. Cults is written by Lauren Bradley and stars Greg Polson and Vanessa Richardson. <laughs>